Before we get started, a note. Delaware by Dark discusses themes of suicide, murder, mayhem, and things lurking in the shadows. Listener discretion is advised. If you're having suicidal thoughts or thoughts about hurting others, please reach out for help. Contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline or your local mental health provider. Help is always available to you. And now, dim the lights, open your mind, and watch the sunset. Here it is. The night has unfurled, and all the things you've endured have brought you to this moment. You've driven across haunted bridges. You've braved feral creatures in the woods. You've seen the worst of humanity, and explored the wild places untouched by human hands. The hauntings, the hunts, the wretched catalog of misdeeds. You've endured them all. And now... Even as the night is darkest, there is the promise of dawn. The midnight paths are leading in one direction, towards the light, towards home. For most, it's a word that means security, sanctuary, a harbor from the tumultuous waves of the world, a place to let your guard down, where you can slowly peel off the armor you don every day to face the indignities outside. One of the most simple pleasures of modern life is the ability to come home and unburden yourself. But even in the most halcyon days in the past, homes weren't always what they should have been. And these days, there are few calm moments. That should come as no surprise. Home is where we are the most unfiltered, the most ourselves that we can be. Sometimes that means we are the ultimate good. Other times, that means we can be the worst thing to happen to the people who live with us. Homes are like a lit candle burning quietly in a dark room. It sheds light, gives comfort, offers a way through the dim. But when that candle burns out, all that is left is the pitch black shadows, the lingering smell of extinguished wick, and the sudden realization that you are no longer protected. It becomes clear that there can be no true refuge in the world for a weary person. Respite disappears, and a soul staggers through life truly lost. It's always appeared that the walls in a home are really a blank canvas, as ready to accept psychic stain as they do paint. What happens when the occupants paint with the colors of trauma? What happens when the walls go crimson and black and ugly shades of pestilent green? Somewhere beneath the flaking layers of satin high gloss, the residue of a thousand angry words clings to a house. The gaping wounds of a single act of violence deform the space, and the red paranoiac paint drips down the walls, as thick as blood and as dark as sin. All of these things decompose the dream house into a nightmare edifice. The house on the hill becomes a festering blight. No hope. No light. What happens to these places when an open heart enters them? What forces pour through the doorway between life and death? And what happens to those trapped within the walls? My name is Mark Belisle. 
And this is Delaware by Dark. The year is 1813. For the second time in 40 years, the fledgling United States finds itself at violent odds with the global might of Britain, and the war has come to Delaware. The city of Lewis has been hard at work. An improvised fort constructed from fresh pine logs was raised in the middle of town. On this early spring day, the sight of a squadron of British ships in the bay is neither surprising nor welcome. The British had arrived to enforce a blockade on the eastern seaboard of the United States. When the ships were spotted, the call for the militia went out, and men were quickly assembled. On April 4th, Commodore John Beresford dispatched a contingent of British soldiers to requisition supplies from the small port town. He had plans to push forward to Cape Henlopen, but thought he might as well get something of value along the way. When the soldiers arrived, they made their demands and found themselves rebuked by the Delaware militiamen. Over the next two days, multiple attempts at negotiating supplies were made. Each time the Commodore was rebuffed. Finally, he lost his patience. He penned a letter to the local magistrate, demanding twenty steers and the vegetables and hay to feed them. He even offered market price for the creatures. In exchange for their subservience, he wrote he would be inclined to not shell the town. However, if the magistrate refused, he would have no choice but to turn the town into rubble. The letter was given to Governor David Hall, who had made the trip from Dover once reports of the British warships had reached the capital. His reply was short. To acquiesce to the Commodore was to violate the laws of the United States, and so it was his responsibility, his duty, to decline. On April 6th, the start of what would become a 22-hour sustained shelling commenced. The bombardment of Lewis would eventually end in a disappointing withdrawal for British forces. The attack was largely ineffective. For all of his bluster, the Commodore had done only minor damage to the town, and the only reported casualties were an injured pig and a dead chicken. After Delaware militiamen managed to retaliate by setting one of the British ships on fire, Commodore Beresford retreated into the Delaware Bay. It was a rather unimportant note for the war effort, but the true legacy left behind by the Commodore still stands today. In the middle of town, a home with wooden shingles and green shutters took a direct hit during the bombardment. The structure shrugged off the shot, albeit with a new addition to its brick foundation, a cannonball. 200 years later, you can walk to the aptly named Cannonball House in downtown Lewis and see the smooth metal sphere still lodged within the brick. But the wonders don't just end at spent ammunition. Because inside Cannonball House, something stirs in the darkness. Something waiting for the right time to make itself known. Something with a fear of fire. Cannonball House has served many uses in the past, it was once a home, a laundry store, a restaurant, and even the mayor's office for a short time. These days, the house stands as a museum dedicated to the rich history of the first town and the first state. During its restaurant days, the house was often a meeting place for the wives of sailors out to sea. They would gather there and offer support to one another in lonely, difficult moments. 
the stress, the tension of not knowing when to expect their husbands and breadwinners to return has left a mark on the building. Reports of footsteps in the upstairs part of the house abound. Workers and visitors claim the steps belong to the women of the past, pacing worried circles and waiting to hear news of any kind. And while these worried spirits are some of the oldest in town, they aren't alone in their residency. The Cannonball House was once in the care of a young woman named Sarah Rowland. One cold night, Sarah was tending the fireplace when a careless accident became a horrifying tragedy. As she stood and turned, her long dress spun into the hearth. The delicate fabric emulated almost immediately, surrounding her in flames. The panicked woman tried to beat out the blaze, but it was no use. Her entire body was engulfed in white, hot heat. Fabric and skin crackled, and Sarah's screams echoed into the night. It was already too late by the time help arrived. The young woman lay smoldering on the floor, and the flames were beginning to spread. Quick thinking and cooperation saved the house, but for Sarah, there was no rescue. In the present day, the house no longer smells of smoke or burnt flesh. If it weren't for the notorious story and the strange tales told by visitors, you wouldn't know anything had happened at all. But Sarah still lingers like smoke in the dark. Visitors say they've seen her spirit in the window, gazing upon a town that is no longer recognizable to her. Paranormal investigators claim the best way to elicit a reaction from the young woman is to bring fire into the house. One such group brought a candle they lit and placed into the fireplace. The experiment worked almost immediately. Strange sounds manifested from the room around them. Sophisticated tools like electromagnetic readers beeped and whined. Another tool that translated electromagnetic fields into words collected a treasure trove of data. It seems that when confronted with fire, Sarah Rowland can't help but be terrified. So if you come to visit Cannonball House, make sure to pay attention to the windows. You might get lucky and see Sarah looking down on you. And whatever you do, leave your lighters at the door. It's better not to torture the poor girl. Eternal suffering is bad enough. While Cannonball House has served many functions throughout its history, another haunted home 30 minutes away has only ever been a place for weary travelers. Bethany Beach was largely devoid of any settlement until 1900. European settlers pushed out native tribes who settled near Oak Orchard to the west instead of the shoreline. The Europeans themselves didn't want a place that was cut off from the bulk of Delaware by the Indian River, so the land sat vacant until a congregation of the Disciples of Christ decided they were going to settle the area. They planned to construct a Christian meeting place in the Mid-Atlantic region. Land was purchased, and the settlement began. One of the earliest comers was a man by the name of John Addy. Addy began constructing a large home that could house his entire family. The building was completed in 1902, and for a while, the gorgeous house did indeed keep the Addies within its walls. That is, until tragedy struck multiple times. The building was eventually sold off, and now serves as a beautifully historic bed and breakfast called the Addy Sea. 
but things aren't always relaxing within its walls. There are a multitude of hauntings taking place on the grounds of the 120-year-old structure, and with it being an active bed and breakfast, visitors can indeed book a night in any of the several haunted rooms the Adisee offers. The first of these, Room 1, contains a large copper tub in the bathroom. Guests in the room have seen the heavy tub violently quivering, as if it was being shaken by some unforeseen force. It's alarming and surreal, but try to capture it on video and the device will suddenly power down, completely dead. No professional has been able to find an explanation for the phenomenon, so the mystery of the tub in room 1 remains as strange as it was when it was first reported. When you shut off the lights in room 6, thick ominous tones and eerie organ music play in the dark, which is very strange. The ADC doesn't have any pipe organs on site, but it doesn't stop the concert from happening regardless. Room 11 definitely contains the most interesting activity. It once belonged to Paul Delaney, a handyman and jack-of-all-trades who stayed at the ADC to help out with maintenance. He enjoyed it so much that even though he died elsewhere, his spirit still resides within his old home in Room 11. Those who waken in the dead of night have seen a shadowy figure standing over them quietly as they sleep. Sometimes, Paul tires, and a guest will stir to see him sitting on the edge of their bed near their legs. He doesn't say anything, or even attempt to communicate, but one could easily imagine himself enjoying a phantasmal cigarette as he winds down from another day of hard work. The paranormal activity isn't bound to just the rooms. Step out into the hallways after sunset, and you might even see a shadow fleeing around the corner. Strange perfume hangs in the air, even though the hall is deserted. And perhaps, as an extension of Room 6's manifestations, music can be heard. The final spirit haunting Adisi is that of a member of the Addy family itself. Curdy Addy was on the roof repairing shingles when he lost his footing and plunged to his death. Now, in the evening hours after the whole place quiets, guests have said they've heard footsteps on the roof, clomping from one end to the other. It's a weird thing, but the spirits residing there don't seem to mean the living any harm. Those who want to experience the thin lines separating the living and the dead could do much worse in their quest for knowledge. The Addy Sea has provided many travelers a place to rest, but there are other more accommodating homes in the state. Places where the residents end up staying much longer than anyone could have ever anticipated. Just off I-95, near the Delaware-Pennsylvania border, a large 70-acre estate hosts some of the eeriest ghosts in the region. Rockwood Mansion stands testament that for men with money, anything is possible. The mansion was constructed in the 1850s by a British banker named Joseph Shipley. After working and living in Liverpool, England his entire life, Shipley decided he was to retire in Delaware. He contracted the architects to design an English-style home where he could continue his lifestyle. After the building was completed, Shipley moved his family, his beloved dog, his horses, and even his gardener and housekeeper from Liverpool to Delaware. 
until the day they arrived on the property, none of them had ever laid eyes on the site. They quickly fell in love with the place and lived there until Shipley's death. The estate was then handed down to Shipley's nephew, a man named Edward Bringhurst Jr. Edward moved in with his wife Anna and their three youngest children, Mary, Edith, and Eddie. Their eldest daughter, Bessie, who was living in an Irish castle at the time, was responsible for most of the decor and furniture choices. Those decisions have endured. Rockwood is furnished with all of the original furniture brought by Shipley from England. After the Bringhurst line died out, Rockwood Mansion was left to Newcastle County to preserve and protect for the enjoyment of all future generations. And while the Friends of Rockwood were formed to protect the mansion, it seems they spend just as much time protecting guests from Rockwood. The peculiar apparitions around the mansion have been documented and witnessed many times by many people. Visitors touring the grounds have noticed a man in a red smoking jacket sitting alone in quiet rooms. When they speak to him, he slowly fades away, only to reappear in another room. While no one is sure of who this man could be, it's been theorized that it could be old man Shipley himself. Shipley had brought Toby, his favorite dog, with him from Liverpool, a dog who is now often witnessed prowling the estate. The creature means no harm, and when people go to investigate, it also disappears without a trace. It seems as if Toby didn't just follow his master from Liverpool, but perhaps into death itself. Elsewhere in the house, the ghost of little Eddie still lingers as well. While he grew up and married and moved away, it seems Eddie's spirit eventually returned to Rockwood. He's been known to playfully push people in the dining hall and has been spotted near the crumbling ruins of his old playhouse. Guests and tourists have also reported seeing a young woman in a fine dress at the top of the stairs. She brings with her the scent of lingering perfume and a cold aura that brings chills to your skin. Perhaps this is Mary Bringhurst, who never married nor had children, who so loved Rockwood that she continues to stay there to this day. Rockwood is far from being the only mansion in the state that has a reputation for being a paranormal hotspot. About an hour to the south in the capital city of Dover, another large house rivals its grandeur and ghostly occupants. Woodburn Mansion was constructed in 1790 by a man named Charles Hilliard. The home has seven bedrooms, a great hall, a parlor, and an exquisitely equipped dining hall. It also has at least four ghosts who regularly walk the halls when the sun sets. The house has exchanged hands many times during its history, but its most recent owner is perhaps one of the most powerful in the state. Woodburn was purchased by the state of Delaware in 1965 to serve as the governor's residence. Every governor since then has spent time at Woodburn. Prior to its purchase, the mansion had housed some of the most wealthy and elite residents in Delaware history and every single one of them reported seeing something odd. In the 1820s, Dr. M. W. Bates owned the house. One night, he invited a preacher to stay over. The preacher agreed and spent the day visiting with the Bates family and touring the grounds. 
As he was retiring for the night, the preacher turned down a hallway and noticed a man slowly shuffling up a flight of stairs. The preacher got a good look at the strange man. He was dressed in colonial-era clothing with coiffed hair. When the preacher called out to him, the man ignored him and disappeared into the darkness. The next morning, during breakfast, the man of the cloth suggested they wait for their other guests before they began eating. Dr. Bates was confused. The preacher was the only guest staying there that night. When the man of God described the man on the stairs, Bates' face went white as a sheet. The preacher had perfectly described Dr. Bates' father, who owned Woodburn before him. The same man who had died years ago. The dining room has also been a hot spot for unexplained things. People touring the room hear footsteps and creaking floorboards before they enter. Strange sounds and laughter emanate from the empty table, and it's said that many a First Lady of Delaware has set out wine, only to have it mysteriously disappear. It seems the ghosts of Woodburn like to have a good time. Another former resident described how he used to fill a crystal decanter with wine. He'd leave it in his office, and when he returned, the decanter was emptied. The man assumed it was a member of the staff, or his family. That is, until the day he returned to his office at night, and discovered a man in fine colonial clothing lurking in the darkness where he kept the decanter. When he called out for the man to stop, the apparition faded away. The most mischievous of the ghosts that haunt Woodburn is a mysterious young girl in a red checkered dress. No one has any idea who this child could be, but she's never shy about making her presence known. She loves to play in the pools and fountains around the mansion, where she smiles and leaps into the water. Her most infamous appearance took place during the 1985 inauguration of Governor Mike Castle. Several guests reported having their clothing pulled by a mysterious force. Cheerful laughter belonging to a child was heard during the reception. Several guests even saw the girl floating in the corner of the reception hall, with a coy smile tugging at her lips. For the most part, the ghosts of Woodburn are peaceful. For the most part. Around the property, ominous poplar trees give the place a subtle sense of foreboding. And after hearing the tale of the last ghost who walks the grounds, it's easy to understand why. During the residency of Mr. Dan Cowgill, a brazen attack turned gruesome accident forever changed the way people looked upon the front lawn. Dan Cowgill was a Quaker and a staunch abolitionist. During his stay at Woodburn, he made the mansion into a stop for the Underground Railroad. One night, the property was attacked by raiders looking for fleeing blacks to kidnap and sell back into slavery. The raiders were ultimately turned away by Cowgill and the residents there. One of the would-be slavers attempted to flee through the front lawn with a plan to scale a poplar tree and hide. He made it up the tree, but as he maneuvered around the branches, he lost his footing. He fell towards the lawn and in a freak accident caught his head in a tree hollow. All of this went unnoticed by his fellow criminals and the Woodburn defenders. He hung there by his head and neck, slowly being strangled in the dark. Without the neck being snapped, 
It can take up to 20 minutes for a person to suffocate during a hanging. 20 minutes might as well be an eternity for a person in that situation. Thrashing, squirming, trying to free yourself. The world darkening as your brain slowly loses oxygen. Tears streaming from your eyes and the air on your windpipe coming in ragged, spasmodic gasps. And now, his spirit endures. When the night falls and the world goes quiet, it's said you can hear his muffled screams. Eternally punished for his evil deeds, the man is forced to relive his hanging over and over and over again. And for those observing at Woodburn Manor, he serves an uncomfortable reminder of our worst, most base instincts as a species. Delaware has a long history of haunted homes. But anyone who's ever drawn breath knows that home isn't always a place. Sometimes, home can be as much a person as a destination. Is it possible to haunt a person's life? Can you become so intertwined with one another that you follow each other into even death? And what happens when a home is forever lost to tragedy? A terrifying tale set near Cokesbury Church in Sussex County might hold the answer to all of those questions. The day was supposed to be the most beautiful one in her whole life. The bride was gorgeous, radiant in a simple dress of pure white. The veil she wore hid her smile and she beamed even though the heart in her chest tapped against her sternum in a nervous rhythm. The bridesmaids talked excitedly amongst themselves. They shared flutes of champagne and stories of their friendships. The only thing they needed was the knock at the door, telling them to assemble for the wedding procession. It had been a while since they were sequestered. It felt overdue, to be honest, but the bride wasn't sure how any of this was supposed to really work. She figured it was just a matter of time before they came to get her. And yet, as time passed and the minutes stretched into an hour, the nervousness soured into anxiety, which slowly distilled into fear. The bridesmaids grew quiet, irritable. The bride took off her veil, began to pace back and forth, her dress's long train dragging across the floor. The young woman, whose entire life had been leading up to this point, began to feel panic pulling at the seams of her heart. And then, a series of taps on the door. The bride was so relieved, she laughed. One of the bridesmaids grinned. We're ready for a close-up, she said, as she opened the thick oak door. The smile faded. An older woman, pale, unsure of what to say looked inside. She whispered something to the bridesmaid. It was meant to be a secret, but the bride heard it. The groom still hadn't arrived. No one knew where he was. The bridesmaid shut the door and looked at the woman in the white dress. The bride looked stunned. A single tear traced a line through her makeup as it fell. Hey, it will be okay. I'm sure he's just running late. Don't cry. The fear and anxiety relented to a new, awful sensation. 
a sense of embarrassment that grabbed at her heart like a talon. He had stood her up. He had chickened out. He had left her at the altar, never to be seen again. She would have to leave the room, bear the indignity and the shame in front of her family and friends. She would be a laughingstock. She wept. Her friends gathered to comfort her. Her mother came in and told her not to worry. The preacher told her to have faith. Hours passed. Nothing. No husband. No wedding. No relief. People began getting up from the folded chairs and walking to their cars. In the sequestered room, she could hear the sound of engines starting and the crunch of gravel beneath the wheels. The humiliation was complete, total. The bride cursed his name, swore she regretted the day she met him. She didn't mean those things, not yet anyway. She wouldn't mean them for many days until the love she had for him went cold leaving a hard lump in her heart that was never to be excised. Outside, another set of wheels turned into the driveway. A cop car, a highway patrolman with defeated posture. He wore sunglasses even though dusk approached. He walked to the door of the church, raised a hand to knock. He paused, removed his hat, gave three firm raps. The preacher opened the door and looked at the trooper's stoic face. At that moment, the preacher understood everything. The trooper asked for the bride. She heard the footsteps in the hallway, and when the door opened, she looked up at the man as he fiddled with his hat. Her bloodshot eyes looked at those sunglasses, trying her hardest to see through the tent. Ma'am, he said. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this. And then, just like that, everything made sense. She closed her eyes as the trooper talked, and when she opened them again, the world had gone gray and had begun to constrict her heart. Down the hall in the sanctuary, the preacher knelt in prayer as her screams began. The story traveled quickly. People would see her in the store and whisper, There she is. You remember that accident that shut down the highway? That was her fiancé. The whispers were meant to be a secret, but she heard them. The accident had stolen everything from her. The future, her past, her love, all of it was gone. There was only the loss only the memory of the curse that she had leveled upon him. She never recovered. She took to walking down the highway where the groom was killed. She knew that she would never see him again, but she also knew there was always a ghost of a chance. If people stopped to ask her if she needed help, she would get in and ask if they had seen her man, if they knew where he could have gone. She began losing weight, Her skin went ashen and gray. Dark circles formed beneath once beautiful eyes, and the smile that she'd worn so carelessly on her wedding day became a grimace, grit teeth as each step on the blacktop took her closer to a reunion. 
there was no place left in the world for her. And so she became a ghost long before her body finally failed her. She was buried next to him, so perhaps in death they could finally be together. But there was to be no reunion, because people still see her on Highway 404 near Cokesbury Church Road. Listen to the stories, and you'll hear that if you drive along the highway near midnight, you might just meet her. There's a stop sign near the church, and you'll slow the car, come to rest in the night. You'll check to see if it's safe, and then drive into the darkness. As you watch the road illuminated in your headlights, sometimes you'll hear a heavy breath in your back seat. You'll glance into the rearview mirror and see a beautiful, if not heartbroken woman looking at you. Have you seen him? Your blood will go cold. The hairs on your arms will stand on end. Your heart will pound as adrenaline surges into your veins. My husband, have you seen him? You'll desperately think of something, anything to say. You'll pass by the simple white church without even noticing it. The bride will continue to look at you as you round the bend. Have you seen him? She'll reach out. You'll close your eyes, terrified at what the touch of the grave will feel like. Except the touch never comes. You'll open your eyes. The back seat will be empty. Nothing except the smell of perfume and the sense that you have just lived through an extraordinary experience. You'll try to slow your heart, try to catch your breath. Behind you, Cokesbury Church will glow in the darkness. You'll pull off onto the shoulder and wait for the world to make sense again, as if it could ever make sense again. And eventually, you'll have no choice but to continue on, because it will occur to you that there's nothing stopping her from coming back. She could still be there in the shadows, a ghost looking for her life, looking for her love, looking for her home. So you'll unclench the muscles in your hand, you'll shift the car into drive, and pull back out onto the highway, back into the night. In the distance, the city lights twinkle like little beacons guiding you home. The soft crunch of leaves beneath your feet, the pale glow of the moon above, the bite of chill in the air, the sensation of being watched from the tree line. A month spent in the gloom, exploring forgotten forests and back roads, dusty books and outdated websites, swimming through the blood and the malice, communing with the spirits, late nights on darkened streets, poorly lit pathways with passing strangers, and then home. The cozy warmth greeting you when you step inside, the satisfying click of the engaged deadbolt, the soft lighting and welcoming smells, the smiling faces, the happily wagging tails, all the beauty and love and joy we could stand. For the vast majority of us, 
A home is all of this and more. And yet, for each person who gets to come home, there are many others who have to go home. We live in incredible times. The world seems to kneel before us. Humanity, by and large, has everything it could ever desire at its beck and call. However, these incredible times are also full of wanton wickedness, casual cruelty. Vapid consumerism and constant shock are stalwart companions. Every day, insults and regrets and unanswered requests pile up. Reminders that much of what we do is destructive. That much of what we do is without purpose. But still, humans, by our very nature, are an optimistic species. Why else do we build bridges? Why do we try to map the world? Why do we risk everything to pull others up out of bondage? Why do we save slices of wilderness? Why else would we build a home when tomorrow isn't guaranteed? It's easy to look at humanity and wonder if we are long for this world. Sometimes, I confess, I sit on my balcony after the sun goes down. I watch the passing cars pumping poison into the night. I listen to the crickets chirp in the dewy grass three stories down. I close my eyes and hear the call of the night birds or the sound of some faraway dog barking. I'll take a swallow of dark, bitter beer as a car drives by, windows rattling from bass thumps. And then, there'll be a moment when I'm alone. There are no cars. There are no people. I'll wonder if, when it's all over, I'll become a ghost too. That I'll wake up after that last slumber and find myself tethered someplace for eternity. I'll imagine what that means, to be bound somewhere like a dog chained to a tree, free to see everything, free to do nothing. I'll imagine that I'm just another reminder that there was a world before the present, that there will be a world after the future, that we are all an insignificant footnote in the grand story of human progress. And then, somewhere close, a light comes. It snaps me out of the grim reverie, tosses me a lifeline to save me from nihilism's viscous pool. A car passes, then another. Somewhere below me, a person begs a designer dog to go potty. On the other side of the balcony door, I hear laughter. Inside, where it's warm, where it's bright, where I can bask in the glow of promise, where I can recuperate so I can go back out into the world and try to do good. Yes, the world is cruel, but it is also wondrous. It has enough space for the liars and murderers and innocence and saints. It has room for both mystery and knowledge, room for playful ghosts and world-shattering grief, room for me to believe in the good despite the darkness. I stand up, give the world one last look, 
Then I turn around and let myself back into my home. Thank you for joining us tonight on the season finale of Delaware by Dark. I hope you enjoyed these homebound paths of Delaware history. It would mean the world if you rated and reviewed us on your podcaster of choice. If you don't feel like rating and reviewing, that's fine. You can always share it with a friend, loved one, or send the link to your governor's email. Make sure they know they could be staying in a very haunted house. If you've ever been to any of the houses in tonight's episode, or even wanted to tell me about the time you ran into the Cokesbury Church ghost, write into the show at randomdrawpodcast at gmail.com. It's going to be a long off-season, and I'd love to hear your spookiest stories. Delaware by Dark is a Random Draw production, and it was written and hosted by Mark Belisle, hey, that's me, and produced and edited by super skeptic Dave Hubbard. It's been a long road, and I know we're both glad to be home. Special thanks to Tahara Johnson, Tasha Hughes, and Tiffany Hanser for the eerie tale of Cokesbury Church, and to all those homemakers who make us feel loved and protected. The most important thing in the world is to have a place where you belong. An even bigger thanks to everyone who helped make this season of Delaware by Darker Reality. To my partner, Jackie Nelson, who dealt with the long nights and the constant work by encouraging me to even greater heights. To Dave Hubbard, who suffered through hours of mouth noises and misspoken lines to make this show possible. To my family and friends who offered unconditional support and a place to relax. To my sister, Samantha Dayton, for the box of Irish breakfast tea. The caffeine was absolutely critical to this project. And finally, to you. A ghost story is nothing without listeners huddled together in the dark. Next season, we're leaving the borders of the first state and stretching out into the world beyond. Join us as Delaware by Dark changes its name to Random Draw, Dead of Night, and travels north to the Keystone State, Pennsylvania. In the meantime, stay safe, open your mind, and keep watching the shadows.